Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. An alleged criminal defendant gets arrested in Pennsylvania, and depending on the severity of the crime, he or she will appear before a district magistrate who will set the amount and level of bail that defendant must pay. If bail is not met, the accused could be sent to jail. However, often the most important factor when bail is set is whether the defendant is a flight risk, whether they will show up for subsequent court proceedings. Is that keeping the public safe? Is it fair to those who don't have money to pay even nominal bail? Our guests today are calling for bail reforms. Joining us, Pennsylvania Secretary of Corrections John Wetzel. Secretary Wetzel, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Also, Pennsylvania victim advocate Jennifer Storm. Ms. Storm, welcome to the program. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, we welcome your questions and comments. 1-800-729-7532 is the number to call. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Your thoughts on Pennsylvania's bail system. Does it need reform? Uh, what's a better way to handle it if the, if you think that it, it does need reforms? All right, let me start with that broad question. The two of you have gone on record. Uh, you've had op-eds appear in several newspapers saying that Pennsylvania should reform how bail is set. Why is reform warranted? And Secretary Wetzel, I'll start with you. Yeah, I mean, in general, uh, the system consistently makes poor decisions, both incarcerating people, primarily people who are living in poverty, um, who don't need to be incarcerated, and on the other end of the system, letting people out who, who in many cases, far too many cases, frankly, um, kill people. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, other than that, it's a great system. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to see we are criminal justice system has a sense of humor. Jennifer Storm, what about you? And I completely agree. I, I think that there, we need to be applying common sense to bail decisions. And I think, unfortunately, there are far too often decisions being made that put the community at risk and, more importantly, put victims at risk. And we're seeing far too many lives taken. And then on the on the opposite side of that, we're seeing people sitting in, in, in jail, uh, going untreated, undiagnosed, uh, and suffering. And, and that's not a system that I, I'm proud to be a part of. So I, I think that there is room for improvement on all ends of the spectrum. All right. The two of you are coming at this from different points of view, even though you may have the same opinion. Uh, you're both in the criminal justice system, but uh, Jennifer, victims, your number one priority, mm -hmm. although I'm not going to speak for you, Secretary Wetzel, but uh, I'm part of your title, victim advocate. Absolutely. All right. So from a victim's point of view, what needs to happen or what's wrong with this system? From the victim's point of view, we need to be looking at true assessment of risk. So when an individual is coming before an MDJ and all that is being looked at is data that doesn't actually speak to the risk to that victim that, that is standing there begging, asking, pleading for help, we have a problem. We have a system that's broken. Um, right now, protection from abuse data is not, it, it's not used. We have this incredible wealth of data that exists. It's one of the primary sources of safety that victims seek. It's a civil process. So oftentimes we're not seeing it indicated civil on is, the criminal the side. PDA. It's the, the protection from abuse right. order is a civil proceeding. Right. It's a right. civil process. A violation of that order is a civil proceeding and a civil process. So we're not seeing that very important rich data showing up in the places that we should when we're assessing risk of offender, when we're looking at supervising offenders, when coming out. So from a victim standpoint, it, it's common sense to use that data to look at the actual true risk. It doesn't matter if the individual is going to show up to court. He's going to show up at her front door first and kill her and her children. And so placing these kind of arbitrary bail conditions, especially no contact. 
it sounds great on paper, but when you have somebody in front of you who has had seven PFAs and has violated five of them, a no contact order is not going to be something that that person is going to take seriously. They're going to violate it. So you have to look at the risk to that victim. And and the bail conditions require that in domestic violence cases. And we're still seeing that the data is not being presented. It's not being utilized. Or even when it is, it's being ignored. Oh, okay. When you say it's not being presented whose responsibility is to is it to present it and as far as the the judge goes mm -hmm. uh, you know are they not taking that seriously enough or what some of them aren't seeing it at all um, as we know we have 67 counties so right. we have 67 different ways of doing things in some counties we have robust pretrial departments that are putting forth really good assessments of an offender and providing that information in other counties we have nothing or we have a prior record score we'll have limited information that doesn't include PFA data right now there are there are no models that include PFA data or that encourage it uh, so that would be my first solution is we need to start utilizing this data we need to start <coughs> applying it to decisions as they you know as they reflect the victim's safety. Yeah, we got a real problem. We have 67 different ways of doing it, yeah. and, and we in Pennsylvania do that in many ways. Mm -hmm. All right, Secretary Wetzel, from a corrections point of view, uh, as I said, the two of you look at this a little bit differently. How do you look at it from a corrections point of view? Well, I, I look at it as our, our responsibility to have a, a, a criminal justice system that makes good decisions. And, and having less victims are something everybody in the system would agree with. And, and it is complicated, which is one of the reasons why no one's, frankly, had the guts to, to tackle this up to this point. I mean, think about the notion that depending on what county you're in, it depends on how good the decisions are going to be and, frankly, how safe you're going to be. Mm -hmm. it's, it's inexcusable. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't – I mean, there's no other system that we would be okay with this. I mean, if you went to your doctor and told him what was wrong with you and he didn't do any tests and just kind of guessed, you'd find a new doctor. Mm -hmm. So, so for some reason, because it's complicated, because of this construct where we have hundreds, several hundreds of magisterial district judge, justices and in different counties with different resources and, and frankly, terrible data in the criminal justice system. I mean, um, we don't have a standard information platform that starts with the police and follows through the end of our system. And it is 2016, by the way. Um, <laughs> you know, this is inexcusable, and, and we have to get to a point. It's enough. I mean, how many headlines are we going to read? We'll talk about that. I mean, in, in the columns that uh, the two of you wrote, you gave some examples. What are some of those examples where the system failed? Yeah, well, one, especially uh, close to me, is a, a childhood friend, uh, Stacy Seldomridge Pennington, who last Labor Day um, was murdered by... Uh, an individual who she had a PFA against. And Stacy did everything right from the 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 second she was assaulted, the first time she reported it, uh, filed charges. And, and the, the circumstances around the assault, if, if an assessment was being used, would suggest that this person has a high probability of, of escalating uh, his violence. And eight months, nine months after that, she's going into work in, in uh, Mount Gretna, and he ambushes her. It's inexcusable. And and the thing that that is the worst from from my standpoint about this is that she trusted a system, and the it, system failed her. Well, period. Okay. And I have to ask you. You're right. From what I have read about that case, I mean, the the perpetrator there 
I mean, he had several PFAs. Or, Seven. Yeah, by several different women, yes. right? Yes. And uh, a number of those women's women dropped the PFAs. Mm-hmm. Now, again, that's not on them. But did it, are you saying that the district justice did not see that guy's history, seven different PFAs, and he was out on bail? Yeah. That's, That's what happened. exactly what happened. And then when there well, were... Well, in his case, there was also another was arrest. Charges. And yes. he had, he had uh, spent some time in the county jail mm-hmm. and was released. Yes. Um, so there's a bunch of systems that touched, that, that touched um, this guy. And given the facts, if we had a system that delivered objective facts and ranked risk, no person who... No credible person in the criminal justice system would think it was smart for him to be out in the community. Yeah. All right. So uh, that's where my next question comes in. How was that a bail problem? Are you saying that if the district justice had seen that prior history, that he would the bail would have been set high or he would have been incarcerated? Yeah, I'm saying that someone who has a history of uh, protection from abuse... Uh, who who the facts of the case when uh, choking in particular mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is something that that um, predicts an escalation of violence. That was his mo. I mean, he had yes. choked other other. Well, women. at least in in, in, in the case Stacey's of Stacy. Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. yes. And um, and so he was out. I mean, he was supposed to get sentenced the the day after the Wednesday, and yeah. she was murdered on Monday, right? Yep. Yeah. 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 Oh. And, I mean, and he had on. access. He and, still had access to weapons too, and that's the other the other challenge with PFAs. So PFAs are one of the primary means that we can relinquish weapons for victims, and oftentimes that's not happening. We have uh, loopholes in the system in terms of third party keeping. A a you know a defendant can go and give those weapons to dad, and we we call that safekeeping, and think that they're not going to have logical access to those weapons. Um, so there's some loopholes, and we have some legislation pending to try to address those. Uh, but even on the sentencing side of that, so we don't look at PFA data or infractions of PFAs on the sentencing side either. So he was, there was a criminal uh, a criminal conviction. He pled, he was going to plead guilty and he was going to do, I think it was going to be probation, I believe. I don't even think he was going to do time. Or he so was going to do time. Was gonna be be county time. He was going to be out eventually. Yeah. Um, but even at the back end of the system, we don't look at the, the protection from abuse data and the infractions of protection from abuse data to possibly have some type of an enhancement on sentences to guarantee that someone is incarcerated for a longer period um, depending upon, you know, a lot of domestic violence cases get pled down. The, almost the majority, the overwhelmingly majority of these cases get pled down. So you're looking at light sentences, too. So when we're not looking at other factors in terms of the, the sentencing structure and the sentencing matrix, then we have a problem. Then you have somebody who is not going to be sanctioned effectively or appropriately or is not going to go somewhere and have the opportunity and the time to receive the programming that could potentially change that behavior. Well, I mean, you brought up a number of different issues there, but let me start by saying that do we have, I mean, I think I know the answer to the question, but uh, do we have a bail problem or do we have a PFA problem or do we have both? I think we have both. I don't think we have a PFA problem. I think we have... I mean, when we have one civil... And, you know, and, and then it becomes criminal when there's a mm-hmm. violation. But at the same time, well, it becomes if you criminal, people... but it's not the data is not used. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If, if that be the case, then it sounds like we have a PFA problem, too. We have a problem not using the good data that PFAs give us. That I would say, yes, that's the problem we have with PFAs. And we, we have a very large bail problem. OK. Secretary, I know you're big on data. You're big on science. You, one of the nation's leaders in uh, corrections, when when using scientific data, where does data come in here? And I, I, I really I have to say I'm shocked. 
I thought I knew the system pretty well that this data, this information is not being used. Now, that's not in 100% of the cases, right? No. I no. no. No, it's okay. not. But it's. I think the key is that when people talk about a Pennsylvania bail system, it's a misnomer. There's no system. Mm-hmm. There's a series of individual decisions made on a bunch of different data, and the outcomes are significantly different. And it's a system that div- uh, delivers disparate uh, disparate outcomes, uh, and there's one that jumped out. We we did a present. We had a presentation yesterday at Justice Reinvestment. The one that jumped out to me the most is they looked at who was assigned monetary bail, and 36 percent of everybody who goes uh, gets monetary bail. Right, so either they have to make bail or or they go to jail. And when you look specifically at people who are arrested for a felony weapons charge, if I as a black person uh, a gets arrested for a felony weapons charge 78% of the time, monetary bail. If you, as a white person, gets arrested 33% of the time. Okay, but now I'm going to ask the question, does the background, you know, uh, if there's a record, does that come into play at all? Or is it just when you're comparing apples to apples? It's never just, but the fact is in every category that you can look at, there's a racial disparity. Okay. All right. And when you talk about a racial disparity of thirty three percent versus seventy eight percent. That's a big disparity, yeah. There, you know, there's something there's a problem. There's there's definitely a problem with that. And again, I think the key is what information are we looking at when we make these decisions? I nothing I I'm not disparaging any decision maker because I I'll tell you that that people are trying to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. But the fact that we allow a system of this size and this scope and this import and this cost, that we allow it to happen haphazardly, and haphazardly may be a, a, a glowing review of the system because I think it's worse than that. I don't understand. I, I can't fathom how we can continue to let this be okay. Well, if you take Washington County, what happened in Washington County uh, a couple weeks ago. Yeah, just a few weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. So you had this woman who files a PFA, is incredibly detailed in the PFA. The the individual violates the PFA, kidnaps her, assaults her, keeps her for, I believe it was 11 days. She finally is able to escape, goes, reports, all these criminal charges are filed. He goes before a, a magisterial justice and gets a $100,000 bail, which is decent bail, right? It's decent. He should have been remanded, in my humble opinion, but it was a decision that that person made. So the prosecutor's office, um, doing their due diligence for the victim, drafted a reconsideration and came before a common police judge. Common police judge looks at all the facts. And then he had the, some of the PFA information, probably not in depth, um, but he had some of the PFA. I've read the motion. He had some of the PFA data. Knows that this person has violated PFAs. Decides to um, not remand him, as, as the prosecutor requested, keeps the bail where it is, but puts extra conditions on him. And those conditions are no contact with the victim, arbitrary in my opinion, and GPS monitoring. And here's where I think, and I'll agree with John, I'm not challenging his decision making. I think he was making a what he thought was a good decision on poor information. He thought that county used a, an active GPS monitoring system, meaning that if that individual leaves the zone they're not supposed to be in, or if they cut the bracelet off, the alarm's going to go off. The agent or the, the officer, the parole officer is going to know. They're going to alert the victim. They're going to alert the authorities. They're going to apprehend the individual. However, they use a passive GPS system. Wait, and wait, we wait. See I, can I interrupt for a second? Absolutely. The judge didn't know that. I do not believe he knew that in that case, no. 
How can that happen? Because I don't think probation was talking to judiciary. Okay, go ahead. I hate to interrupt, but yeah, that, that and, and that's mind. not uncommon. Um, there are a lot of entities that are using passive GPS and trying to use those for domestic violence uh, offenders, and they're not effective. They're just simply not. It's great to have a paper trail after the fact, but if the person's dead, what does that paper trail do other than prove, yeah, he definitely did it? So when when that individual cut that bracelet off and and then sought her out, an alarm was going off, but nobody was listening. And that is tragic. That is an epic systematic failure at its core. Um, and it's heartbreaking. That was a preventable crime. Yeah, she was kidnapped and he killed Absolutely. her. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and he killed her in the exact same manner and put her body in the exact same place that she said it would be in the PFA. And if that doesn't give you chills, I don't know what should. It was a barn, right? It was a barn. And yeah. I think that that's where it, it, the outrage comes, that the majority of these, and when we're talking about some of these murder, suicides, and domestic violence incidents, they're, they're preventable. And if we had and used good data, and the data is out there. It's just it's streamlining it. It's utilizing it. It's looking at it to make better decisions. We could save lives. Well, and Jen, I, I, even a step further, you know, there's some some emerging stuff around risk assessments mm-hmm. that you can build for police officers yes. to determine the the dangerousness of a situation. Yes. And and again, I think w- one of the themes of of justice reinvestment and and um, you know one of the things that I think it was really smart by Governor Wolf to focus this justice reinvestment on the front end of the system. Mm-hmm. And one of the emerging themes is that the state does not invest in the front end of the system at all. So the state doesn't fund um, like a pretrial risk. Mm-hmm. So if, if we're going to have a consistent bail system, it's going to require the state to to put some skin in the game. It also doesn't uh, significantly invest in local probation in spite of the fact that 73 people who are under 73 percent of the people who are under supervision are under local supervision. Um, state invests a very small amount. And and Pennsylvania is literally the only state that doesn't fund indigent defense. The only state in the country. Uh, not Louisiana, you know, not Alabama, <laughs> Pennsylvania. So the, so the theme that, that we're not funding, we're not funding the front end of the system in spite of the fact that the front end of the system feeds the back end of the system. So what we know about low-risk people who, who don't make bail, who spend more than 24 hours incarcerated pretrial have an increased risk of committing a new crime. So what that should really signal to us is that first decision is critical. And then you look at the work that Al Bloomstein did uh, probably four decades ago about the crime funnel, right? So a bunch of people get arrested, less people get incarcerated at the county level, less at the state level. Well, if you shut off that funnel by making better decisions and the the, the outcome of, of a real bail system is twofold and they seem like they're competing interests. One, we're going to lock less people up pretrial, and two, we're going to do a better job, not 100%, but a better job of catching people who are dangerous Mm -hmm. and finding a mechanism to keep them incarcerated until we can address the dangerousness or attempt to. Talk about all those things in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. We're talking about bail reform in Pennsylvania, a lot of other topics in the criminal justice system with our guest today, Pennsylvania's victim advocate Jennifer Storm and Pennsylvania Secretary of Corrections John Wetzel. If you have a question or a comment, 1-800-729-7532 is the number to call. Or you can send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org or go on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. All right, now let me just... Take a step back. Before we went to the break, uh, Secretary Wetzel, you were talking about uh, the funnel and indigent uh, defendants and being in jail. Jennifer, as the victim advocate, you know that 
there are many victims out there who say, I don't care that he's in jail or she's in jail uh, when she, because they can't afford an attorney. Mm -hmm. They feel safer that that person is in jail. There would definitely be an opinion of that. I think there would also be an opinion that would suggest that if spending time in jail can prove that that person is going to go out and harm another person, I don't know a victim who would be okay with that. If we can show that treatment versus incarceration will help reduce that person's risk of hurting another person, I don't know a victim that can't get behind that. As long as we're taking into consideration the safety of that survivor, of that victim, and making sure that their needs are being met and we're treating the needs of that offender and we're lowering his risk to recidivate, that's a win. Okay. The big picture is that I, I, I would agree with you that uh, you know many victims would say, I don't want other people to be hurt. Yeah, absolutely. But at the same time, they're also probably scared. Course. Very frightened, mm -hmm. and they're worried about their own safety. Yes, and that's where I think when John was getting to this, I think when you have the individual who's clearly posing a risk, who is a threat, you've got to treat that person as the threat that they are, and and that means you've got to you've got to remove them from from the public, right? You've got to remove that threat, um, and then while they're incarcerated, because let's be honest, almost what is it ninety close to ninety percent of all these individuals are going to come out of state prison at some point or county prison. Right. No one goes away for life except for lifers. So we're talking about, you know, homicide cases or those who have aggregate per, 10 sentences. 10 percent of our population today. Yeah, 10 percent is the one that, that are staying yep. in. So at some point, those individuals are coming out. Um, so we need to be making smarter decisions about where they're going, what type of programming they're receiving, what type of treatment, because we you want them to come out a person that's not going to harm again. And Jen, I'd add, and and proper supervision on the back. Absolutely, end, yes. Right. So, yes. so what what our system, the criminal justice system, as Pennsylvania is is a based on retribution. In other words, if you do A, B happens. Mm -hmm. What we're really saying is is what when you do A, B should happen, but B should put you on the path uh, that makes it less likely that you commit another crime. We need to start. Uh, gathering information that and, and do a better job of predicting what that path should be like. Mm -hmm. And and again, it's going to be a, a heavy lift and it's going to be difficult. But I don't know how we as Pennsylvanians are just okay with the outcomes of our system. Wow. I, I just I, I can't imagine anybody's going, well, that, that's yeah, a that system that well. doesn't need to <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, What do other states do? I mean, I was not aware, Secretary, what you said, that we're the only state that does not provide funding for indigent uh, uh, defendants. Uh, I mean, it's, unfortunately, we have several different areas where we're the only or one of just a handful. But... Uh, yeah, there's really aspects of our system that are, are so far ahead of the country, and then there's others that, that just leave you scratching scratching your head. All right, well, point to a state. Give me an example of a state that's doing it right. Um, Kentucky's done some work around pretrial risk assessment with the Arnold Foundation. So the Arnold Foundation created this pretrial risk tool. Actually, the first state to do pretrial risk was Virginia. Um, back in the mid-2000s, where they developed a, a pretrial risk tool that would predict um, what we're looking for, right? That would predict um, who's likely to appear based on objective facts. And and they piloted, the Arnold Foundation piloted in Louisville and had less people fa fail to appear um, and less people get locked up, right? But I also think you could look to New Jersey, who's done some bail reform. And part of their bail reform uh, under Governor Christie actually was uh, they create a category of people who could be remanded, 
pre-trial when previously that was precluded in addition to um, getting people out of the system. And, and this discussion and one of the other aspects of this discussion is, look, we're going through a historic opioid epidemic mm -hmm. in which we literally have the governor of Pennsylvania traveling around the Commonwealth trying to understand and come up with a strategy for opioids. Someone gets a, a, arrested and is addicted, right? And, and all we do is incarcerate them pretrial or let them out pretrial. It's a bad decision on both ends. Mm -hmm. and, and I think we have an opportunity to, to looking at the opioid, opioid epidemic in particular. And I'll tell you, in the Department of Corrections, over the past six years, we've doubled the number of opioid addicts who came in our front door from 6% to 12%. And we're talking 12% of 20,000, so a significant number. We have an opportunity when we identify someone who has an addiction issue, assuming there's no public safety, to divert them into like one of the centers of excellence, right? So, so this new treatment infrastructure that's being built. And we do that pre-trial, and that does a couple things. One, we're not spending the money. We, the county, aren't spending the money on pre-trial. And, and frankly, most counties don't have the ability or the time to deliver good treatment inside their jails, right? So we put them in treatment. And then when they come to sentencing, we have either an individual who's done what we've asked them to do, and then you could make the argument, maybe they don't need to be incarcerated, or we have someone who had this opportunity to go into treatment, again, on the federal dime, because we're now an expansion state. And um, and they chose not to do that, and that gives the judge information also that, hey, maybe they're not ready to be in the community and let's lock them up. But but we really need to front end more of this stuff. And again, it's, it's really why one of the themes of this justice reinvestment is the state has significant interest in decisions make at the front end of the system. And if that's the case, and if we want better decisions at the front end, then the state has to put some skin in the game. All right. Well, here, here's the issue. And you're well aware of this, and I, I can say it, and I don't know whether you can or not, is that... Yeah, you got two Shylands here. <laughs> I, I know. <laughs> yeah, no I know. It's hard to believe. Um, <laughs> that we, and, I, and I'm not just talking about Pennsylvania, but, you know, we established dollars are tight. Mm-hmm. And we as a society, we as state government, and other, I think other states do this too, and even local governments, we don't think long term. We want to. We want to think about, okay, you know, if we do this up front, and you use the word investment, well, that's what an investment is. We spend this money up front that in the long term we see positive results. Often we don't do that here in Pennsylvania because the dollars are so tight. Well, we don't do it in Pennsylvania because long-term thinking for elected officials is yeah. the next election. Well, that's I mean, right. so okay. let's I mean, so, so let's honest. put the cards on so the table. So you went ahead yeah. and said yeah. so. Go well, I mean, ahead. That, I mean, that's that's the facts. But All the right. reality is, we we are facing um, the most significant uh, opioid epidemic in our history. And if we think that business as usual is going to get it done, it's not. And and the reality is our approach to drugs in America over the past three or four decades has been a criminal justice approach. Right. So that's why this is relevant to this discussion. Seventy, Probably 70% of the people who come through the front door of the criminal justice system at least have some substance use issues, if not addiction, mm -hmm. right? Um, so when you start talking about this, I think the first conversation is what should the system look like? The second conversation then is what the cost is. And then the third conversation is how can we leverage federal dollars, um, Medicaid expansion and all these things to offset that cost? And then uh, the whole concept of justice reinvestment is that when we do this, the good news is when we improve the criminal justice system, we actually lock less people up and have less people returning when they leave the system. So ultimately, we attain savings on the back end. 
savings money-wise. But you and, certainly and need and that investment. And I always have to bring up that, you know, that victims or the public is, is safer. safer. Than, Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, one of the area I want to talk about is communication, coordination, collaboration, and common sense for the most part are free. They're free resources, and every county has the ability to use them. And when we see counties that use multidisciplinary teams, when we see counties that have domestic violence task forces, sexual assault response teams, those are areas where we see less crime and a more coordinated um, and a more impactful process. These are free things. Certainly, they cost time, right? They're, they're, it's a staff person's time to attend the meeting, to coordinate maybe some data, um, but it, it's it's one meeting once a month to get together to start looking at some of these cases. There is a lethality assessment program right now that is free to any police department in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania through the Pennsylvania Commission on Crime and Delinquency's funding of Which PCADV. Which is relatively new. Right. Relatively new program right. started in Maryland. Evidence-based has shown a 36% reduction rate in lethality in domestic violence victims in Maryland. And maybe you can describe that a little bit. Yeah, Jen. so what this is, the lethality assessment program, it's an 11-question questionnaire mm -hmm. that law enforcement have so it's they have like this little laminated uh, card that they take out anytime they're responding to a domestic violence call they'll go through these questions with the victim now this is very much victim focused victim initiated so they'll go through these questions with the victim but what those questions tell them are the risk level of that person's the likelihood that that person will kill them so what they do then is they front-end a ton of services to the victim shelter counseling wraparound services safety planning uh, very very important and it's shown to reduce the safety concerns that victims have in Maryland, and it's, it's working quite effectively here in Pennsylvania. What we need to be doing is taking that data and then using it at the pretrial level and using it at the supervision level as well. And we're slowly starting to have those conversations because uh, it's great to put all those resources on the victim, but it shouldn't be the victim's responsibility to have to leave their home and go to shelter if that's the only means of safety. It shouldn't have to be all incumbent upon the victim. We need to also be applying these risk factors to the offender and saying, okay, what programming does this person need? Do they need just incarceration are they just not ready? Are they are they a perceived threat and danger, or are there, is there a direct programming that they can receive that will impact their behavior that can make better they can make better choices? Um, so we are seeing really good effectiveness with the 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 assessment program. We have 40 counties in the Commonwealth that are using it, and every time we have one of these horrible murder suicides, I know PCADB is going into those counties and saying, "Here's a tool we have. Please, please use it. It's free." And Jim, one of the things that, that you bring up is, is and highlight again, is that our, our system is so disjointed and and it oftentimes doesn't talk to each other. Mm -hmm. And and frankly, one of the challenges with government is that that we're, we're kind of slaves to the funding streams. Mm -hmm. So because this is funded this way and this is funded this way, um, well, we can't do this and we can't do that. And, and the reality is and, and 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 Scott, you bring up, you know, these financial times. Mm -hmm. But understand when we build systems that work together, that communicate with each other, we, we're reducing work in other areas. So I think one of the core of, of all this, a criminal justice system that makes sense, is developing a system to, to systematically connect and share data among criminal justice mm -hmm. agencies, the courts, um, victim services. Mm -hmm. so, and, and, and I don't think that that should not be um, such a heavy lift. No, and it should well, be cost prohibitive. Okay, well, one, one of the things that uh, you just said, Jennifer, we have 67 counties. You mm -hmm. said 40. Mm -hmm. Only 40 of the 67. Yes. Are, 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 and that's only 40 counties that have police departments that are using, right? So we why have a, whatever all, 12 why aren't police departments. Why are all 67 using it? That's a good question. 
It's a good question for the, the 27 counties that aren't using it and the other police departments that aren't using it. It, it, it. Whether it's an investment, if it's a buy-in issue, um, it certainly shouldn't be a resource issue because it's it's a tool that is free. PCADB is going to come in. They're going to do the training. They're going to provide technical assistance. They're going to support that community. Um, it, it, it's common sense. Yeah, listen, these are one of these things, though, where, where um, part of the reason is people generally don't know about it, and, and it's really important that people get educated about things and then force folks like us in, in these positions to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Not to, for a police agency not to use this tool. Yeah. That a laminated piece of paper, I mean, I'm, I'm sure Jen will print it for you <laughs> if you say you can't afford the yeah, paper. exactly. Right? But, right. you know, it's not, not dissimilar to the, the number of, of police agencies who aren't using Narcan. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's not dissimilar. So here we have something that the cost is not a, a deal breaker, but we choose not to do that. Mm. And, and again, Criminal justice may be one of the few fields that just get away with bad practices and not measure an outcome. And then we wonder why. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me bring up another case. We're getting back to, to, to bail in particular. There was a case in Lancaster County last summer. We've been talking a lot about domestic violence. And by the way, the, the, what Jennifer had referenced, and I'm sure most people know, is Pennsylvania Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... Case in Lancaster County last summer, a woman and her 16-year-old daughter were killed, allegedly by a man um, who had sexually assaulted uh, the teenager and her sister, her teenage sister. Uh, his bail for the sex crimes was set at $50,000, but only one-tenth had to be posted. Mm-hmm. That's $5,000. He was accused of the murders while free after his wife posted the $5,000 bail. So $50,000 isn't really... Fifty thousand no, dollars. So, basically, this guy was set free, accused of uh, a number of very serious crimes, but set free on five thousand dollars bail. Now, that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense either. No, no. I mean, clearly, that guy was a, was a threat. Particularly, you see with especially with sexual sex assault victims and child abuse cases, you see these low bails or these moderate bails, right? But then there's only a percentage that need to be posted, and, and there is this lack of understanding of the threat, especially when there are active criminal charges, and that victim must come to court and testify. That is the probably one of the most dangerous times, and the case that always haunts me is the Holover case. Right in Middletown. In, in Middletown yeah. on Christmas, you know, the, there were sexual assault uh, charges, and those two brave girls were going through court. They had testified at the preliminary hearing. Mom came in, got a PFA into my agency on behalf of those uh, the, herself and those girls. But he was out on bail, and so what did he do? He showed up right before they were going to have to go to trial and testify, and he killed the whole family. So you have to understand, but it's a shift in thinking, and it's a shift in in thinking that um, okay, is this person going to show up and be there for court versus is this person going to go and kill the the person who's going to have to also show up in court and testify against them? And we've got to be weighing those equally, if not more, weighted towards the safety uh, of that victim and the public. This this case that I was just talking about in Quarryville, uh, the the guy, the alleged murderer, lived, I think it was like two miles, less than two miles away from the victims. I mean, I, I think I know the answer the way you're talking about this, but I mean, is that something taken into consideration, the actual proximity should to be. to it, the victim? It should be. When we work with victims um, on the back end of the system, when individuals are coming out and they're going um, on supervision, we certainly look at geographical locations and we try to take those factors into consideration um, and, and we try to make sure that victim safety is paramount. So we can do geographical restrictions. You can do active GPS 
GPS or electronic monitoring. There are effective tools that can be used also to keep somebody in, in the community safely and, and to also make sure that the victim's sense of safety is being taken into consideration as well. But you've got to be able to utilize those, to utilize those tools, and they have to be real. They can't be passive. Well, but I also think, I mean, let's be real here. We're not splitting the atom. Right. I mean, no. we have mm -hmm. some of some of the, the brightest criminal justice minds in the country, literally here between the universities and and practitioners. And so do you mean to tell me that we can't come up with a group of people who we believe based on on whatever circumstances should be incarcerated mm -hmm. pretrial? and a group of people who could be in the community and a group of people in between and we can't provide guidelines to give to feed the discretion of the mm -hmm. judges and make a decision that I, that doesn't seem like a, a heavy no. uh, heavy lift i mean it, it it's a heavy lift one to roll it out but i mean if you would read five different cases the vast majority of of your listeners would say well this should happen mm -hmm. right and you would get broad consensus on it so yeah. the question is why doesn't it happen I mean, that's the question. Yeah. I'm shaking my head here, really. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I did not realize. Well, that seems to be yeah. what's lacking. There is both of common sense common is not sense common. Is not yeah. common. Exactly. You're, you're listening to <laughs> you're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR news and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. Let me turn up my microphone here. Uh, welcome back to Smart Talk. We're talking about uh, reforming bail. Our guest today, Pennsylvania Secretary of Corrections John Wetzel, Pennsylvania's victim advocate Jennifer Storm. We welcome your questions and comments. 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or comment on WITS Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. Right, we have an email here. Uh, and I want to get in and want to make sure that we leave time for what you see as uh, solutions here of how the, the system could be better, even though you've touched on it uh, throughout the program. Um, we have an email. A woman says, my case is over 10 years old. I'd like to know if things have changed. At the time, I had a PFA against my now ex-husband. Uh, I landed in the emergency room, who was and still is a licensed attorney. I lived in Berks County. He moved to Lackawanna County after the PFA was issued. He violated the PFA. I reported the violation. However, because he did not reside in the same county, Burks informed me that he could not arrest him. He then filed for spousal support in Lackawanna County. I attempted to inform them of the PFA in violation, but they insisted that I must appear for a support hearing when I appeared. I presented the PFA in violation documentation, but they refused to act on the violation. He was subsequently arrested and taken to Burks County for a hearing where he was ordered to take anger management classes. Has communication between counties changed? Well, first, I want to say to her that I'm very sorry that she experienced that, and, and thank you for, for posing the, the scenario. I, I would like to think so, yes, um, but not necessarily. We don't necessarily have uh, counties that, that communicate with one another, and we don't have information systems that often allow for that to even happen. Um, it, certainly, when you have a PFA, if that PFA is violated, it's the county where that PFA has been issued. That's the county where the violation is taking um, place. doesn't matter if they moved to Lackawanna, if they moved to Washington, if they violated the PFA that exists in her county, they should have been held accountable. Now, it does sound like he was arrested and held accountable right. and, and got some of the, the programming that we would recommend for an individual like that. Um, so I, I would like to say that there there is better coordination in certain pockets and there is a place for, and room for improvement in other pockets. All right. Well, getting back to bail. Um, you know, right now we've established that the priority is to make sure that uh, someone who has been arrested shows up for uh, future court proceedings. A big part of that is that, uh, you know, someone who is arrested has a constitutional right 
that they're presumed innocent before being proven guilty. So I would assume that plays a big part in the bail system as well, that you, know, you can't just lock someone up uh, or establish bail at a million dollars because you don't like the looks of them or that uh, you, you just looking at them without information, you think this person could be, uh, you know, could be a threat. So I guess my question is, how did we establish this, that bail was, the priority of bail was to uh, make sure that someone came, you know, that they came for their, uh, their future court proceedings? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the the premise of bail mm-hmm. generally around the country that that um, people have a liberty interest and and the presumption of innocence, mm-hmm. and that um, that there's only certain factors that should be considered. But um, what I would say is is first of all, look at our current construct, and in essence, what we do is we use money as a prox for risk. Mm-hmm. So, if I'm someone who's poor and get arrested for retail theft. And you set bail at 50 bucks and I don't have 50 bucks, I'm going to sit in jail pre-trial. If I'm someone who's loaded and allegedly sexually assault, let's say, you mean, dozens of you women. You loaded yeah. with money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. loaded with money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I need to clarify that. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's say I, I sexually, allegedly sexually assault dozens of women. You set my bail at a million, two million, three million, I'm going to make it. Mm-hmm. That's not about risk. That's about money. Yep. So what we're what we're talking about here is let's set up a system that makes good decisions based on factors that make sense. Certainly fair you to appear. Certainly the presumption of innocence is the basis of our criminal justice system and it should remain that way. But if you make the argument that we that we make decisions based on that now, it's a false argument. When you look at the number of poor people who are incarcerated mm-hmm. simply because they can't make bail, and we're talking for nonviolent offenses. Yep. Um, I don't know how you make that argument. You know, a few weeks ago, and I think uh, the two of you said you heard that program, County Commissioners Association of Pennsylvania had commissioned a, a study on their, their, their county jails. And they also talked about bail reform because they felt that there were too many people in county jails who were there because they couldn't make bail. Mm-hmm. And it cost a lot more to incarcerate someone, well, over a course of a year, $40,000 in a county jail, according to their statistics. It cost a lot more to keep someone behind bars than it does if they were out in the streets. Mm-hmm. What about that, Secretary? I, I agree with that 100%. Uh, I mean, 100%. And then when you talk about cost, when you start shifting that cost from incarceration to programs and treatment and supervision. Mm-hmm. It doesn't just benefit the people you're diverting, but it creates an infrastructure that benefits other people. So again, the criminal justice system generally, when we improve or reform criminal justice system, it generally is used less and it's less expense. And when we're smart and deliberate about how we uh, reallocate that money, I think we have a real opportunity. I mean, I think probably around 50% across just a, a a guess across the Commonwealth of the people in county jails today, which is about 36,000 people, about half of them are pretrial. And um, and it would be interesting to look at, I think in general, about a third of the cases are misdemeanors mm-hmm. and two thirds somewhere in that ballpark are, are felonies. All right. Um, and so you'd be hard pressed to argue to me that 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 whole one third of of that uh, eighteen thousand 
uh, need to be incarcerated pre-trial at $40,000 a year. All right, we only have about nine minutes left, and you've touched on this, but um, uh, Secretary Wetzel, what you said earlier, and I think that you know you could use this uh, thinking for this strategy for a lot of different things in life, but uh, that, okay, you dream it, you picture it, you set a goal, then you think about the dollars. All right, set a goal for me. What would be the ideal situation with bail in Pennsylvania? And I'm looking for answers for both of you. Yeah, so I think it would start with a system that allows the, the first responders to enter information into a system that doesn't just give the information from that uh, situation, but any relevant information to include PFAs and those things, to include um, prior incarcerations, prior arrests, as much data as we can get. To, to allow us to make a good decision and then provide specific guidelines based on, on um, number one, risk, risk to appear, but also risk to public safety. Um, and Those two equal? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. certainly. I mean, uh, and, and understand, and there's crimes that there's some bells you can't unring, right? And there's some things you do where you're going to need to be incarcerated, period. And, but that's generally not what we, we're talking about. In spite of the fact that that's generally what we build our systems around, that's not the majority of the cases. So I think provide assistance and guidance into how to make systemic good decisions at the front end. And then uh, a mechanism to to divert people and address the root cause of the crime. That has to be a piece of this, especially in the 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 era of opioid epidemic. Mental illness. Um, mental illness. And, and when you talk about the counties, you're looking at... In my system, it's 70% uh, addicted and 28% mentally ill. The counties are definitely higher than that. Mm -hmm. So if we're going to talk about diverting and, and locking up less people, we also have to have a serious conversation about creating an infrastructure where we can get them what they need so we have less victims. And and that's what I think. And then, then from there... Everything falls in line. We make better decisions. We have less people incarcerated. We're, we're starting to build services. But this isn't just a conversation among criminal justice professionals. Mm -hmm. I mean, part of our group is, is Ted Dallas, the secretary of Department of Human Services, who at, at a recent meeting talking about creating, uh, doing some research around uh, the mentally ill and the criminal justice system, what, what Ted Dallas said, and I really laud him for saying this, is, look, if there's a gap in my system that's leading people to jail, and we can understand how it happens. We'll, we'll address it. That's what good, you know. That's government that works or whatever. I'm not. I don't remember what the book is, but I think <laughs> it's government should. that works. Government I know. Works. Okay. You're going to risk. Yeah, I'm in trouble now. <laughs> uh, so, Jim, what would you like to say? No, I mean, I agree with him. I think that we need to create a system that helps people, that helps the victims, that takes their safety and security into consideration, and that also is is punitive in, in the areas that it needs to be. Like, I agree with what um, Secretary said. There are some bells that can't be unrung. There are some crimes that are so heinous that incarceration is the solution. Um, but that's not the vast majority. And, and as a person who's very passionate about addiction issues, as you know, I, I, I know that people sitting in jail versus treatment are not getting better. And I want to be a part of a system that actually is trying to make people better as opposed to putting them somewhere, making them worse, coming out, having them reoffend, because then that creates harm. And we know the more people, the angrier they get, the more hurt they get, the more they're going to eventually hurt other people. And then that produces victims. And that doesn't do anything to benefit society, to benefit that person, to benefit the system. You know, there are so many different issues around this, but uh, the, the violent crime rate has actually been going down mm -hmm. for the last uh, 20 years or so. Why? 
Why do you think that's happening? I mean, obviously, we have an opioid problem right now. We have a number of people who are behind bars who are mentally ill that probably should be getting treatment rather than being behind mm -hmm. bars. But why do you think that the crime rate has actually gone down? Well, I think a, I think a couple things. I think that the, if you look at the progress that corrections in general across the country has made around uh, treatment and moving away from well, no treatment works, so let's just lock them up. Throw I mean, away the key. So, yeah. so you, you, what you've seen is a real evolution around the, the criminal justice system around this, but also around the same time frame. You've seen a lot of work in the criminal justice system around risk assessment mm -hmm. and, and, and letting that risk assessment both dictate what we do inside prisons and also, and, and probably more importantly, how we supervise people in the back end. And, and what we're talking about here is just front-ending that that risk assessment. I think I, I'm pretty sure it was the late mid to late '90s when the LSIR and, mm -hmm. and the work out of Canada with Bonta and Andrews really started uh, getting expanded throughout. And I think I'm guessing that that that's a piece of it. So I guess the reason I ask this question is, uh, could you speculate that? crime rates would go down even more if w yeah. what you're talking about would be enacted. I think if we continue to address the root cause of the criminal behavior, then logic would dictate that we will then reduce crime. We have about two minutes left. I want to thank both of you for being with us here today. Um, I had a question from a listener. What can people in the community who haven't had experience with these systems do to change the system? I want to help. Uh, that brings up the point of the legislature. Anything we're talking about here would have to be done in the legislature. Um, first of all, does Governor Wolf support what you're talking about? Uh, Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. What about legislators? Have you had legislators who have read those op-eds you've done, maybe heard this today, and have said, you know, we need to do something? Uh, so we have all four caucuses are represented on, on the Justice Reinvestment Group, and as, and the group came to a consensus that these are the this is one of the areas we need to look at. Now, as you know, with legislation, the devil's in the detail. So once we get to a place where it's legislation, then we'll go through um, the process. But again, I, what we talked about, I think the fight will be where we find the money and all that stuff. I can't imagine that a, a legislator would would come out and say, no, we don't want to do this. We can't we can't have a system that makes better decisions. And some of these risk assessments are free, and they can be done today in counties. So certainly legislation is needed for this broader kind of reform initiative. But if people want to start using the lethality assessment program, if counties want to make a concerted effort to get more data um, to the justices as they're making decisions, they can do that. Do we have any counties in our listening area, 18 counties, central Pennsylvania, not using it? I'll call them out on the air. I don't think Lebanon is. I don't believe that Lebanon County is. Right. Um, and again, I don't run the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Domestic Violence runs that program. I know that Cumberland has, York has, um, the, like I said. But again, these are counties, but they're not reflective of all the police departments in that county. So you could have one county that has bought into the lethality assessment program, but only one police department in that county is using it. So I want to be mindful of that. We have over 1,200 police departments, and this is a police department tool. Mm -hmm. All right. We're almost out of time. And uh, I, the, the, the listener who asked about what they can do, it would sound as if, uh, you know, maybe contacting the legislator say that uh, we believe in some reform is needed here. Ask questions. Ask questions. And I, 
we need to demand accountability from criminal justice professionals and outcomes from criminal justice professionals. Mm -hmm. We have uh, Pennsylvania Secretary of uh, Corrections John Wetzel and uh, Pennsylvania Victim Advocate Jennifer Storm with us. Thank you very much for being with us today. Always enjoy your appearances on the program. Thank, Thank you. you. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's show, we're going to talk about a little bit of history tomorrow. Simon Cameron and uh, this very interesting book that has been written. Talk to you tomorrow.